Good morning. My name is Edgar Momo, for those who are visiting with us for the first time, and I have the privilege of serving on the pastoral staff here at ZF. We are continuing this morning with our series on the book of Mark, and today's text, Mark 8, verse 1 to 21, and tells a story that the French will call a déjà vu. A déjà vu means that it is something or an experience that you may have already encountered. So that will beg the question as to why Mark recorded another story in this text that we have already encountered. Here are some questions that got me thinking as I read this passage. Was Mark not successful in convincing his readers by the account of the first feeding that Christ is the compassionate shepherd who feeds his people in a miraculous way? The second question that I thought of is this. Is Mark's first narrative does it lack any significant spiritual implications that he still wanted his readers to know? Or was this merely intended to emphasize the previous incident that we have already encountered? Please come along with me as we explore these questions, the text that we have this morning with these questions at the back of our minds. Would you please pray with me? Father, in Jesus' name, we come humbly before your throne of grace. Our hearts are open wide to receive your word. Help us to understand and, Lord, to go out there and leave as a people who truly believe those things that we hear about you and share our faith with others. Lord, we have already prayed for Ukraine. I pray this morning for our brothers and sisters who do not have the privilege of gathering together like this. We pray that you will bless them wherever they are in Jesus' name. Let us read the text together from Mark chapter 8, verse 1 to 21. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said, and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat 
with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them and got into the boat again and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had not brought no, they had brought no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, you do not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for 5,000? And how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? There are seemingly three discrete movements in this passage in terms of the plot. However, they are thematically interlinked. And the narrative covers Jesus' feeding of another great crowd that the Pharisees and the Pharisees demanded a sign from him. And lastly, Jesus revealed the deeper meaning of his miraculous feeding of the crowd to his disciples. Now let us explore these three movements together. Number one, and we will spend bulk of our time on this one. Jesus attends to the physical needs of the crowd again. Take note of the word again. It is from verse 1 to 10. Verse 1 reads, In those days when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd. Mark is intentional with, he, with this, the physiology of this statement here. First, he gives us the time frame of what he's about to introduce to us. So he opens the narrative with, in those days. What days, perhaps one may ask? Perhaps his goal is to draw our attention to the series of miracles that Christ had already performed in the region of Galilee and its environs. For instance, the cleansing of the leper, the healing of the man with the withered hand, the healing of the demoniac. What about the Syrophoenician daughter? And the healing of the deaf man and the feeding of the 5,000. There were lots of miracles already done. And so Mark is saying, in those days, things were happening. In chapter 6, verse 53 to 56, he tells us that when Jesus got to Genesaret, 
the people immediately recognized him and brought the sick to him on their beds. And wherever he went, whether in villages, in cities, or the countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many that touched him were made well. Perhaps Mark did not want his readers, like you and I, to lose sight of the fact that these miracles were not done in isolation of each other. Rather, the Lord intended them. And he did each miracle out of love and compassion for the people while demonstrating that he was indeed the Messiah. He is the Christ, the Son of God. Mark also described the size of the crowd as a great crowd. In fact, we know the exact number because he tells us that they were 4,000. He also prefaced the description of the crowd with the adverb, again, which signifies that it is happening once more. It has happened before, and it is happening once more. In direct reference to the feeding of the 5,000 with fewer loaves of bread. But in contrast with the feeding of the 5,000, we see here the crowd had been with Jesus with only a full day. But in this context, the people stayed with Jesus for three days. So Mark points out that they had nothing to eat. So that no one would even mistake that. They had nothing to eat. Mark then pivots to another seminal part of this narrative. He points to us that Jesus called his disciples to himself, perhaps for a quick consultative meeting. A meeting, I believe, didn't last for over two minutes, which is quite unlike what someone describes as church missions board meetings that would meet for hours to talk about missions and the advancement of the gospel and only end up with a strategic paper that does nothing. In this context, Jesus went straight to the heart of the matter with his disciples. He said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me for three days and have nothing to eat. It is important to note here that Jesus took notice of their physical hunger and not only their spiritual hunger, which he has been feeding for three days as they hung out with him. So he didn't want them to go home, to send them home hungry. That in itself speaks a lot about the holistic approach to Jesus' ministry. We should inform our own approach to missions. There is this saying in Africa, an empty stomach has no ears. And this means that a hungry person is not able to concentrate on anything else except the desire to meet their basic need. And Jesus saw it. He knew that they were hungry. So he said to his disciples, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me three days and have nothing to eat. What does this also say about the heart of Christ? That it doesn't matter the duration that we may have had to put up with our struggles, whether it is temporal or it's chronic, whether it is small or it is big, the compassionate one fills them with us. 
and the feeding of the 5,000, when Jesus saw the great crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he fed them. Similarly, in this account, he was moved by a cause. He said, because they have been with me for three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from a faraway place. Let's do something. This shows us that the compassionate heart of Christ toward his people is without a cause. And his affection for all peoples is boundless. His compassion for us as fallen and frail, weak creatures in our pain in and our sufferings, in our sin and in our sorrow, in our lack and in our inadequacies, in our loneliness and in our rejection, knows no limit. Christ cares about all. And this caring and this compassion is not precipitated on a mere emotional feeling that lasts for just a moment. No. It goes to the root cause of our problems. Actually, the Greek word for compassion stems from the word entrails or vital organs such as the kidney, such as the heart, lungs. And the common usage of this word became, came to metaphorically mean to be moved deeply within to the seats of your emotions. And this is therefore indicative that the kind of compassion Jesus had for the crowd was a God-wrenching emotion that saw their desperate physical needs after feeding them with spiritual food for three days. In other words, he felt their hunger pangs with them and fully envisaged what would happen to them if they were to go home hungry. He said, they will faint. On the way. Did the disciples take notice of that? Maybe not, but Jesus did. The one who has the compassionate heart did. That means that our Lord is not unconcerned with our problems. If Jesus is confronted with a lost soul, he saves them. If he's confronted with, a, with desperation, he offers solution. If he's confronted with a, with a loss, he brings in comfort. If he's confronted with doubt, he gives assurance. And if, he's if we confront him with our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus cares. In reaction to the Lord's compassion on the crowd, his disciples immediately pointed out the practical difficulties they were faced with. They said to the Lord, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Now take note of how Jesus responded to them with another question. He asked them, how many loaves do you have? Whereas Jesus saw the needs of the people with a heart of compassion, his disciples saw the challenges that surrounded the situation. You wonder how quickly 
They had forgotten that Jesus had fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. But hey, don't you try to play that card quickly on them. Just yet. What about us? What about us? How often do we fall in that same kind of predicament? Don't we quite so often forget the great things the Lord has done for us in the past, just in the face of our current challenges? Don't we? Just like the Israelites who witnessed the mighty deliverance of the Lord in the face of the Egyptian army that was closing in on them, the Lord parted the Red Sea and they walked through. And he drowned all the Egyptian army just to get into the wilderness and complain bitterly against Moses. Why did you bring us here where there is no food? And God responded to that complaint. He told Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's, portion, a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they would walk in my law or not. Exodus 16 verse 4 tells us that. For us, we like the disciples are quick to forget and prone to ask, how can one feed these people with bread here in the desolate place. Or in our own case, we ask, how would I make it through this situation? How would this relationship ever be repaired? Or how am I going to get from here to there? Because see the desperation, the frustration, the anxiety is palpable. How? But I turn my life around. The compassionate one knows. And the obvious answer to all these questions is that no one, at least no human being, can provide bread for the multitude in the wilderness. Only God can. Only He can provide food for the hungry souls. Turn lives around, change situations, because He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. The living one, the one who does all things well. He does all things well. Although he refused to provide bread for himself in the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan, he provided food for multitudes in the desert and in desolate places. Although he refused to save himself from the agony of the cross, he gave eternal life to a dying thief and all who would put their trust in him. And he refused to reject the weight of our sins so that he can bring you and I forgiveness. After his disciples answered Jesus about how many loaves they had, he did not entertain any more discussion, but immediately went to action. He himself commanded the crowd to sit down, almost like saying, hey, fellas, it's dinner time. Sit down for dinner. 
By this token, Mark shows us that Jesus cut through the spiritual dullness of the disciples' heart, or perhaps their reluctance to address the situation and brought in the solution. Also, Mark contrasts the spiritual dullness of the disciples' heart by emphasizing the authority of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who can do all things for all peoples. Having blessed the seven laws, he gave them to his disciples to set them before the people. Yikes. I wonder how the disciples felt as they set the food before the 4,000 crowd. What were they saying among themselves as they served? Perhaps Peter the eloquent turned to John the contemplative one, or Thomas the proverbial doubter, or James the quick-tempered one. And they said, Fellas, we missed it again. We missed it. He has done it again. See, it was just seven loaves, and we are still serving. To make matters even clearer to his disciples, he waited after they had finished serving. It looks like, from the reading of the text, serving the seven loaves which he had multiplied. Then he took the few fish they had, blessed them, and put the disciples back to work. I've never been a server but I know for sure serving 4,000 people is not an easy task. It's not an easy job. Perhaps Mark purposefully distinguished the method of, feeding, of, of the feeding Jesus did in this context in order to contrast it with the, the 5,000. Because he shows us here the number of loaves that were present, the number of people who were fed, the basketfuls that the disciples picked, the, the leftovers that they picked, and even the way he blessed the food before he set them before the people. In both instances, no matter what, the people ate. They ate the food and they were satisfied. In other words, the climax of the story is that Jesus is the only true one who brings satisfaction to every situation. He brought satisfaction to the woman at the well. And she, and she went about telling everyone, come see the man who told me everything that I ever did. Of course, this woman didn't do it in a matter of shaming her. Rather, Jesus restored her dignity. By giving her the living water that truly satisfied her thirst. He is the same one of whom the prophet Isaiah recorded the saying. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy, eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Isaiah 55 verse 1. Here is one more footnote on this narrative that distinguishes it from the first feeding. Some scholars have argued that the first feeding took place around Galilee because that's where he was, you know, doing most of his miracles at that time, which means that the population could have been more Jewish. 
And we also see that the way he prayed for the food was very customary for the Jewish. He lifted the food to heaven and he blessed it. But when he came to, to bless them the food to the people of the 4,000, he did not do it the same way he had done. And some have said the 12 baskets are symbolic of the nation of Israel. And so he was kind of really ministering to the, to, 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 to the Israelites. But now in this particular case, they have placed the geographical location to the, the, the Decapolis. And that was far away from where he had done this. And it is supposed that it was densely populated by uh, Gentile communities. And what is this to say to us? That Christ came to preach peace to you who may think that you are far away from God and to you who think that you are closer. And Christ came to preach peace to everyone and more especially to bring the gospel of the good news to the lost. He came to seek and save the lost. Let us briefly go on to our next movement here. The next movement here is that, no, is that Jesus reacts to the religious demand of the Pharisees. No sooner than Jesus had left the feeding of the crowd, the Pharisees approached him. Mark says they began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. On the surface level, I would want to think that the demand of the Pharisees was not out of place because it was widely believed that when the Messiah came, he would perform signs and wonders, for which reason many false messiahs arose and tried to lure the people to follow them by promising astonishing signs, such as repeating some of the Old Testament prophets' miracles that were performed. Perhaps it was signs like these that the Pharisees were demanding from Jesus. Even though they were familiar with the miraculous signs he had already performed, that's why Mark says, in those days, so you don't miss it. It is happening. There were events that were happening in those days. You know about it. However, they still wanted something that would satisfy their religious curiosity. It is clear that the demand of the Pharisees for a sign was not based on genuine inquiry to authenticate the identity of Christ. Rather, it was based on unbelief. And no sign would convince the hard-heartedness of these people. Remember when John was in prison? facing an impending death, he sent word to Jesus, two of his disciples, go ask him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Jesus sent a reply to them in Luke 7, 18 to 23, and listen as I read. He told his, John's disciples, go tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. 
each of these signs that Jesus mentioned to John the Baptist were not performed in secrecy. The Pharisees saw those signs. And John got it. He got it. Just what he, Jesus said to him, he got it. But the Pharisees still demanded for more signs. Guess what? Jesus refused to give it to them. I'm not going to dignify your doubt and unbelief and blindness. You already see it. John got it. If you don't get it, stay in your blindness, but I am not going to give you any. You see, the Lord is not offended when we come to him with genuine doubts, with a hope of finding answers to our doubts and knowing him more. He was not upset with Thomas when he said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where his, the nails were and put my hands to his side, I would not believe. Jesus was not offended. Rather, he sympathized with, with Thomas's doubt because he was seeking for truth. However, when doubt turns into unbelief and unbelief hardens the heart of a sinner like the Pharisees, in this context, then no further sign will be enough to convince them. Therefore, we, like the Pharisees, should not let unbelief cloud our spiritual understanding of what the Lord has already made evident to us. Mark says, Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why do this generation seek a sign? And that sign was certainly a deep sense of grief and frustration about the blindness of the Pharisees. Because even though they saw the way, Jesus is the way, they saw the way, they willfully rejected it. So Jesus left them in their blindness. I love the way William Barclay summarizes this point. He says, quote, The sign of the truly religious man is not that he comes to church to find God, but that he finds God everywhere. Not that he makes a great deal of sacred places, but that he sanctifies common places. He has left himself, he has not left himself without a witness. We we'll see God in his creation. In essence, God has already given us the most salient sign of all times. He sent his son into the world to preach the good news about the kingdom of God. He laid down his life for us. He performed the greatest miracle and sign of all time. On the third day, he, he rose again from the dead. That is the greatest, the greatest Miracle of all, he did it. They discovered that they, so Jesus resurrected from the grave, and you and I have seen it. Do you believe him? The last movement here briefly, Jesus responds to the deeper spiritual needs of his disciples. 
verse 14 to 21. Now I found this the most intriguing part of this narrative. Jesus had just finished with the blind and unbelieving Pharisees demanding a sign. Him and his disciples got into a boat to cross over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. While they were on the way, Mark yet again suddenly lets us into the logistical wrangles of the disciples. They discover that they had forgotten to bring bread. They had only one loaf. Now let us think of, for this, for a moment, given the miraculous feeding of a crowd of 4,000 people that they themselves had witnessed with seven loaves just the other day, who would be bothered by the realization that they had only one loaf? Who would be? If you think of the multiplying ratio of the feeding of 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread, you will get about one is true, 0 0.00175. And if you considered one loaf of bread for 13 guys, 12 of them plus Jesus, it's just about 0 0.077. You with mathematical brains, which one is more possible to do? Which is easier? Distribute one loaf among 13 guys or distribute seven loaves among 4,000 people? But guess what? The disciples began to argue among themselves, maybe trading blame among themselves as to whose fault it was for forgetting to buy more bread. And Jesus quietly intervened by cautioning them, saying, and listen to this, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And this immediately, I mean immediately heightened the conversation among themselves. They said one to another, maybe because we forgot to bring bread. But as usual, they misunderstood him. They completely missed the point that Jesus was trying, was trying to make. Why would the multiplier of bread for the hungry in desolate places, in desert places, have any issue with providing food for his disciples? Why would he? Did the Pharisees demand? And we see here that they were completely out of place. They missed what Jesus was saying. And Jesus used the language of, the, uh, of their conversation to teach them what was probably about bread, to teach them what he probably was intending to teach them at the end or to give them a deeper meaning of all his miracles that he was performing. Perhaps Mark used the two cautionary injunction, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod to point out the seriousness of what he was saying today. He was not talking about bread. He was just referring to the conversation he had with the Pharisees. And these guys are thinking, uh-uh, we, we didn't bring enough bread again. Trouble. But Jesus said no. The Pharisees demand a sign from the Lord. What do you think? Do you think it bothered the Lord when they asked him for a sign? 
You bet it did. He was troubled by their unbelief and hypocrisy and their hard-heartedness to see that they see the way that he came to show them but yet reject it. And he did not want that to affect them. It pained the Lord just as it grieves him when a sinner turns his back on the forgiveness he died to freely give. Pharisees could not receive it. His disciples are not understanding it. Not that the Lord really wanted the Pharisees' acceptance of him to validate his identity. Rather, it grieved him. Just as Drew read this morning from 1 John 1.11, he came to his own, but his own received him not. It grieved him. So the Lord cautioned his disciples to beware of the corruption and hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the bad influence and wickedness of Herod. Because just as the little leaven makes the door rise, Jesus warned his disciples to beware of such. Similarly, this caution goes for us all today. Oftentimes, we let what we may first see as innocuous behaviors or sin fester into full-blown sin when we fail to pay heed to it. The leaven, the yeast, corrupts the dough. For instance, a flash glance at a pornographic picture may first, at first look less harmful, but if that behavior is not immediately surrendered to the Lord, it becomes a life-defining struggle. What about a little seed? Of resentment in our hearts. When it is not dealt with, it develops into bitterness. And bitterness develops into rage and anger. And you wonder, why am I angry? Why am I doing this? Started with a little seed of resentment, but you did not pay heed to it. Jesus was warning his disciples, beware of the yeast of the leaven. Mark also shows us that Jesus' indignation for the spiritual blindness or the hardness of heart was not only directed toward the Pharisees, but also to his disciples. Because his disciples of all people were supposed to know that the scarcity of resources was not a limiting factor for Christ to demonstrate his authority over all things. He wasn't. So guess. So he asked them a lightning, successive eight questions direct, without stopping. Number one, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Question number three, are, you hard, are your heart hardened? Having eyes you do not see and having ears you do not hear and you do not remember? 
when I broke five loaves for the 5,000? Question number six. How many baskets full of broken pieces did you pick, take up? They said to him, 12. And he landed the seventh question. And the seventh for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And the last one, he said. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Do you not? I wonder if you would have felt, I wonder how you would have felt if you were among the disciples listening to Jesus ask you these questions. Well, we are equally subjected to these same questions today, just as the disciples were. Jesus even quoted the prophet Jeremiah when he said, Having eyes, you do not see. And having ears, you do not hear. Everything we need today for faith and for godliness have been revealed to us through Christ and in his word. But the question is, do you see, hear, and believe his word? In closing, Jesus posed the final question, which was even more sobering for the disciples. He said to them, do you not understand? It took the disciples quite a while to put everything into perspective. That, that they were in the company of the one who walked upon the water. The one who opened the blind eyes, made the lame walk. Gave dignity to the undeserving, fed crowds with little resources, raised the dead, showed compassion for all peoples. He was the one, the Messiah, the Son of God, the living one who is to come. They were in comp the company of him, but yet they were hard to understand. But Mark did not leave us guessing. I guess when Drew gets to the last chapter, you will see that. The very last chapter of the very last verse of Mark, he recorded this. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord walked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. What brought the change? What changed them? They saw the resurrection of Jesus Christ and they got it. They saw it and they got it. And now they went out. In his name, the very same miracles that they were seeing Jesus do, and they are performing miracles. They no longer needed to doubt, no longer needed to say, would this happen? How would this happen? But they did it in the name of Jesus Christ. Three lessons or quick practical lessons we can take away from here. We are reminded that while we live, one, we are reminded that while we live in this life, we will encounter many situations that may practically look impossible. But we should always remember that with God, all things are possible. And that Christ is the one who is able to satisfy our needs both now and in the new creation to come when he will perfectly and finally satisfy us. That we would thirst no more. We will hunger no more. Number two, we are also reminded that the compassionate heart of Christ for us, his people, is boundless. 
It is for every nationality, every tribe, every race, every ethnicity, every tongue. Christ's compassion is for everyone. Lastly, sin is like a leaven. Therefore, never, take, never make excuses for those little sins, quote-unquote. They will grow to become big sins. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word and its truth. Sometimes our hearts are hard to understand what we read or even what you did especially when we face situations in our lives, we doubt, we wonder. Help us, O oh God, with our own belief to see you as the way, to see you as the Messiah, the true one who satisfies all men with great compassion of his heart. Amen. <laughs>